0: Welcome to the Awaken Life Church podcast. For more information about our church, please visit awakenlifechurch.net. We hope you enjoy this message by Daniel Willette. All right, so uh, I just wanna pray this morning. Thank you, Jesus. God, we just thank you, you're here. God, we just declare, God, the spirit of grace going out into this place and just rising up in us. God, we just declare condemnation breaking this morning. God, we declare every lie that um, comes against your goodness in our own hearts, every lie that comes against your grace, God, is being broken today in Jesus' name. God, and we just declare today that, God, we are stepping into a deeper level of understanding in your goodness and in your love, Father God, that we would grow deeper in sonship today. In Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of weeks ago, and I get a drink of water, I spoke a a message called uh, The Culture of Grace, and last week I was going to do part two, but that got changed. So last week I was going to speak part two, I was all ready to go, and then um, Thursday night I felt like fire on a different message, and I ended up talking about Nehemiah, and uh, I just felt fire on that word last week that God is calling us out to step into faith in new areas in our, in our life. And so, but today, I'm going to continue the, the culture of grace. So this is culture of grace part two. So I don't know if that's normal in churches to start a series and then do a different message and then come back to it, but we've thrown normal out the window a long time ago. So, <laughs> so this is culture of grace part two. And it's just so important that we walk in God's grace in our life and we become Jesus focused, not me focused. Grace is about putting our focus, putting our faith in Jesus and what He did, and taking our focus off of us and our performance and what we've done. And I, I said it a couple of weeks ago, but we're not going to get to heaven and celebrate. What we did, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did, Amen. And so that is that is uh, what grace is, and we want to have grace just so solidified in our in our hearts, and we want to have that foundation of grace. So I want to just recap uh, the message I spoke two weeks ago. So we talked about the word gospel, which means good news. Let's say that together: good news. So when we focus and preach about what Jesus did, it will always sound like good news. When we hear preaching and teaching that is focused more on what we're doing and what we should do, that's when we get away from the gospel. The gospel is all about what Jesus did. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. His focus is on Christ in him and not on, on himself. So 1 Corinthians two two, Paul said this. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So one of the differences between Paul and the disciples was uh, Paul was really highly educated. And, you know, the, the disciples were called uneducated fishermen. Where even when, they, when the spirit of God was moving through them, people knew it was God. Because they were like, these guys are uneducated fishermen. This must be God. But Paul actually, he was, uh, to contrast, he was super sharp, uh, highly educated, surpassed everybody, all his, his uh, peers in the law and in his knowledge of the Torah. And I just find that fascinating that he, he said to this church, he says, when I'm, when I'm coming to you guys, I'm determining to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This just shows you his focus. He's like, I'm not relying on my intellect, I'm not relying on what I know. I'm coming to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we're not transformed by beholding ourselves. We're transformed by beholding him. Amen. So when you hear the gospel message preached in its purity, your spirit will come alive. It'll get excited. So we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in that chapter, it contrasts law and grace. And it says this of the law. It says the law is the letter that kills. It says it's the ministry of death. It's the ministry of condemnation. And it says it has no more glory. That's, that's not what I'm saying. That's what, the, that's what Paul's saying in first, Second Corinthians chapter 3. And then it contrasts it with the spirit, and it, which is grace. And he said, in this we have confidence. We are adequate as servants of the new covenant. He calls it the spirit that gives us life, and he calls it the ministry of righteousness. So we're talking about, when we talk about law and grace, we're talking about the difference between the ministry of death and condemnation and the ministry of righteousness. So now, if we don't have grace solidified in our heart, we can, without realizing it, ministering death, ministering, minister death or minister condemnation can come out of us. So we're either going to be in the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, or we're going to be in the ministry of righteousness. So if we had a sign-up sheet in the back, we're like, hey, sign up for the ministries. There's prophetic ministry, there's altar ministry, and there's the ministry of death. Just go ahead and sign up for... You know, and I'm, I'm making a joke about it, but sometimes we don't realize and it, it grieves God's heart. And I've seen this and, it, and I'm sure at some point, you know, in, in my time of preaching, I've probably done it myself. But if we don't have grace solidified in our heart, we could be ministering condemnation to people and putting them under the burden of performance and law instead of preaching Jesus Christ and his purity. So that's what we're talking about. It's, it's the ministry of death and condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness. So when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are ministers of righteousness. Everyone here can be a part of the ministry of righteousness. Now that's one you can sign up for. Sign up for the ministry of righteousness. And it's preaching Jesus and what he did to accomplish righteousness on our behalf. So we talked about a culture of performance versus a culture of grace. And in a culture of performance... Righteousness, your salvation, receiving favor from God, it all depends on you and what you're doing. But in a culture of grace, it depends on Jesus and what He's done. It all depends on Jesus. We're not putting our faith in what we've done, we're putting our faith in Jesus and what He's done. Our part is accepting and receiving Jesus and putting all of our faith in Him and what He has done. Don't put your faith in you, put your faith in Christ. We were talking to somebody in evangelism. Actually, I heard this story from somebody else. It wasn't me that talked to him. But this person was telling them, you know, I put my faith in myself. And when he told me that, I was like, man, I, I'm so glad that I don't have to put my faith in myself. I would be probably a nervous wreck if I put all my faith in me. I have confidence because my faith is in Jesus. My faith is in Christ. So don't put your faith in you. Put your faith in Christ. We talked about Christ. Not wanting his bride to perform for love. God doesn't want his bride to perform for love. He wants his bride to know that she's loved, receive his love, and respond out of love. How many know God doesn't want us to do anything out of religious duty? Nothing. He doesn't want us to do anything out of religious duty. He wants us to do everything out of a response to being loved by him. This is this is the way a good father operates. None of, none of us as parents in the room want our children to respond to us out of obligation to try to earn something. But we want them to respond out of love. We talked about Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. It's a, it's a common scripture. Where Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, unfortunately, uh, people sometimes uh, interpret that verse as that Jesus is saying you have to work really hard to get to heaven because it's this really narrow road and you might be deceived. You might be on this broad road to destruction. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. In two different passages in John 10 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Remember, he says, the gate is narrow, the way is narrow to to life. And in John 10 9, he says, I am the gate. And in John 14 6, he says, I am the way. So this isn't a scripture. That's telling Christians to toe the line and work really hard to get to heaven. This verse is written to the world to tell them that Jesus Christ is the way to get to God. And so if you ever had that thought, I hope that that's just getting broken off you today. And you realize Jesus is our way, our performance. Just no matter how good it is, it can never be good enough. It can never be good enough. And I I feel compassion for people who interpret that scripture that way. Because how do you even know up to the very last moment? How do you know you're going to make it? How do you know if your faith is in what you've done? You're like, well, God, I just hope I've done enough. How many know that's every other religion except Christianity? That's every other religion. That's what it says. Like, you better work hard to do enough to make it. Christianity, the big difference in Christianity is it says you're not relying on you. It's not by works lest any man boast. It's we're relying completely on what Jesus did on the cross. Amen. That's much better news. That's good news. It's not good news if you, if you feel like you're working your whole life to make it, and you're not even sure if you're going to make it. That's bad news. So we talked about a son who knows his love will always do way more than a slave. A slave does just enough to not get punished. But a son will go way farther. A son will go way farther than, than what a slave will go. Because a son is reacting and responding out of love, not out of duty or out of fear of punishment. This is what being a slave looks like is we live out of fear of punishment. And what a son looks like it's fun to be a son. Because what it looks like to be a son is we're living out of the love of our father. So much better. And last week, I just touched on a couple things before I spoke the other message. But I just touched on a couple things about grace. We talked about grace doesn't empower sin. Grace doesn't excuse sin. This is, this is one of my favorite grace quotes. Grace doesn't excuse sin. Grace empowers righteousness. I heard Bill Johnson say that years ago. And I was like, oh. Write that one down in my heart. Grace doesn't excuse sin. Grace empowers righteousness. Grace empowers you to get free from sin. Grace empowering sin absolutely makes no sense. God hates sin as we take on his nature. We hate sin. Sin is destructive. God doesn't hate people. He hates sin because sin is destructive. And so as we embrace grace and we step into sonship, we actually are able to get free of sin. Amen. Amen. Okay. Are you with me so far? If you're struggling with a sin issue, stop focusing on your sin and start focusing on his righteousness and on the fact that he made you righteous. When we focus on his righteousness, he empowers us to get free. We can't get free from sin by focusing on sin. Okay, so we're going to continue on in the culture of grace subject today, this culture of grace part two. And, and I believe this is what I felt like God was speaking to me a few weeks ago about this. I believe we need to go beyond like, cause we preach grace in this church and it's, it's really been foundational. It's changed my life. It's changed Angela's life. It's changed joy's life. And I know I could keep going it could, and Tina and Diane. And, um, but the feeling I had from the Lord was We need to go beyond preaching it and teaching it, and we need to cultivate a culture of grace. And I'm not even sure what that looks like, but I felt like the word of the Lord was you're going to cultivate a culture of grace, and you're going to be exporting this message, and it's going to impact your region, and it's going to impact your nation, and it's going to impact the world. This message is going to impact the world. Um, God just really... (laughs) really doesn't want us under this performance thing and working to do something for the Lord instead of just entering into sonship. I love uh, Chad Deadman, And uh, I think I might've shared this, but Chad, we were at, uh, he's, if you don't know who he is, he's from Bethel. Uh, he's been there forever. His dad, Kevin Dedman has written a bunch of books and Chad's written some. But anyway, Chad just has these adventures with God and he's such a son. Like I just like watching him speak because he's such a son and he just Sat uh, when we were at camp and just shared stories for about 45 minutes, and they didn't like seem like God's stories, but I knew that every story was about God because there are all these adventures that He's just been on, and He's just He's a son enough to just share about His life and and the adventures that He's having and 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 just be okay with it, and then He actually transitions into like you know more like what quote sounds spiritual, but I just even my spirit as He's sharing, I'm like this is what it looks like to be a son. It's like, it's not through this Christianese. It's just like, he's just sharing about, you know, all all these crazy wild adventures that God has him on. Okay, so I want to talk about Ruth today. I want to talk about Ruth, the book of Ruth. This is an awesome book. It's four chapters long. You could probably read it in about 12 minutes. If you're a speed reader, you could probably read it in about five minutes. Um... But it's an amazing story, and it's a story of redemption. And it's actually a beautiful picture of law and grace. And we're going to see that today. It's a beautiful picture of law and grace. It's a redemption story. So some interesting things about Ruth. Ruth was not Jewish, which is interesting. She was a Moabitess from Moab, and, and why that's interesting is because, well, number one, there's not a lot of books in the Old Testament that are about people that weren't Jewish, like most of them all are about Jewish people, this whole book is dedicated to Ruth, who is a Moabitess, another interesting thing about the fact that she wasn't Jewish is she's in the line of Christ, she's in the direct line of Christ, she is actually David, King David's grandmother, or great-grandmother, and so just some interesting things about her, Right off the bat. So I'm going to kind of go through this story. And then I've got a piece of the story I want to key in on. But the story starts with Naomi and Elimelech. They leave Israel because of a famine. And they go to Moab with their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Okay, remember the At least remember the one son, Malin, because we're going to talk about him. So this is Naomi. She leaves Israel with her husband with her two sons, Malin and Chilion. And then shortly after they get to Moab, her husband, Elimelech, dies in Moab. And then Malin and Chilion take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah. Sometimes your eyes can trick you when you see that. It's, it's Orpah. And so they take wives, and they live for about 10 years, and then both of her sons die. So now it's, it's just Naomi, and she has her two daughter-in-laws with her, Ruth and Orpah. And she tries to convince them. She decides she's going to go back to Israel, and she tries to convince her daughter-in-laws, hey, go back to your parents. Um, you know, I release you. And she blesses them to go. And there's like a striking verse. To me, there's a few striking verses that just stand out in, in the book of Ruth. And this is the first one that really jumps out to me. It's Ruth 114. She, she tells Ruth to go and Orpah to go. And, and it says, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung on to her. And Ruth says this, and this is one of the famous scriptures from that book. Where you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. So she ends up going to Israel with Naomi. The Bible says that Naomi, after she saw that Ruth clung to her and she said, I'm going to be with you. Your God's going to be my God. She stopped persuading her to go back to her parents and, and she invited her to go to Israel with her. So. Ruth goes back to Israel. The other daughter goes back to her family. But Ruth and Naomi go to Israel. And so I take Ruth as someone who probably didn't sit on her hands. Um. Shortly after they get to Israel, she says, I'm going to go glean. I'm going to go out in the fields and glean. And if you don't know what gleaning is, it's like, and there's actually still gleaning today. It still happens today. But after the harvesters come through, whatever's left over, they let people come and pick up what's left over. Because it's not profitable for them to go and collect that. So they just let people come and glean and take what's left over. So she goes out to glean. And this is where... She ends up gleaning in Boaz's field, and she meets Boaz. Now, Boaz is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. He's, He's a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He's a picture of Jesus, and he's also a representation of grace, and I'm going to show you that in a minute. So Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. That's what the Bible calls him. Who's our kinsman redeemer? Jesus. Jesus. So Boaz notices Ruth in the fields, and he shows her kindness, love, and favor. Remember, he's a type of Christ. How many know that Jesus showed us kindness, love, and favor, even while we were against him? Even before we loved him, he showed love towards us. So Boaz shows Ruth kindness, love, and favor. And then Ruth, this is important for later, Ruth goes back to Naomi, and she tells Naomi about Boaz and the favor that he's shown her. And then Naomi, she encourages Ruth to present herself to Boaz for marriage. And so you know this story. um, Boaz is, is, he's at the threshing floor, and they had this tradition where they would sleep there overnight. and, And she comes, and she Lays at his feet, and that's like a that's like offering yourself in marriage. So Ruth lays at Boaz's feet, and he he's startled. He wakes up. This woman's laying his feet, as most of us would probably be startled by that. And uh, we we're startled by little kids coming in, waking us up in the middle of the night. And you open your eyes, and there's little kids standing next to you. Like what? The? Don't do that to me, please. But there's this woman laying at Boaz's feet, and. Um, he tells her something interesting. This is where, to me, this really just gets, grips my heart. He tells her something really interesting. He goes, there's someone else that has a first right to redeem you and marry you. And he, he makes her a promise. He says, but if he doesn't redeem you, I will. So right then, Ruth knows she's going to be redeemed, whether it's from this, the first guy who has the first right Or whether it's from Boaz because he makes her promise. If he doesn't redeem you, I promise you, I will redeem you. So this is a picture of law and grace. And often in scripture, the first and the second of something represent law and grace. Law came first and then after came grace. So often in the Old Testament, you see this a lot. Where the first of something represents law. The second of something represents grace. Let me give you a couple examples. By the way, if we don't understand some of this typology and some of the symbolism that's in the Bible, we can get off into some weird doctrines and some weird stuff. Uh, We have to see the Bible as a story about Christ's redemption. Or a story about God redeeming the earth back to himself. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have to hold these things like God is good. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this is a redemption story. This is the story of God redeeming creation back to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. So if we don't have that overall picture in mind, we can take things out here and there and get into some weird things. Okay. So often the first of something in the Bible represents law and the second represents grace. So let me give you an example. Cain and Abel. Cain was the firstborn son. Abel was the secondborn son. Cain was a farmer and he brought fruits and vegetables as a sacrifice to God. But the Bible says that his offering was not pleasing to God. Why? Why was Cain's offering not pleasing to God? Because fruits and vegetables come from the works of the flesh. come from his own sweat. His own work. Fruits and vegetables. He bring that as a sacrifice. And, and the, the Bible says this sacrifice is not pleasing to God. But what did Abel bring? Abel brought a blood sacrifice. So we see Cain. He brought things from the works of his hands. Which represents law. But Abel... Abel's sacrifice was a lamb. And the Bible says that Abel's sacrifice was pleasing to God. Why? Because it was a blood sacrifice that represented grace. So you see how Cain is the first. He's relying on the works of the flesh. Abel is the second brother. He's relying on the blood sacrifice. You see how they're a picture of law and grace. What is Cain, the firstborn son, known for? What do we remember him for? Murder. He's known for murdering his brother. Paul called the law the ministry of death. The law produces death. The day that the law was presented by Moses, 3,000 people died. The, the instant that Moses comes down the mountain, his face shining with the glory of God, and he presents the law to the people, the earth opens up and swallows 3,000 people. 3,000 people die instantly. You can now contrast that with Acts chapter 2. When the gospel is preached, 3,000 people get saved. The law produces death. The spirit produces life. What's Cain known for? The firstborn, he's known for murder. He represents the law. What's Abel known for? He's known for his blood sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And he's also known for his blood being spilled out on the ground that cries out to God. Remember, there's a direct comparison between him and Christ made in the New Testament by Paul. He says, the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so there's a direct comparison to the blood of Abel being spilled on the ground and the blood of Jesus being spilled. So do you see how Cain represents the law and Abel represents grace? First and the second. Let me give you another one. Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, and he was supposed to receive the blessing. Instead, the blessing goes to the secondborn, Jacob, because the blessing could not come through the first law. It can only come through the second, grace. In the book of Malachi, this is where we can get off into some weird stuff if we don't see the Bible as an overall picture of this is a redemption story. This is God redeeming the world back to himself through Jesus Christ. In the book of Malachi, it says this, God hated Esau and loved Jacob. God hated Esau and loved Jacob. Then Paul talks about this in Romans 9. A lot of times in the the book of Romans especially, but throughout Paul's letters, he's actually responding to questions that he was getting. So he would often say the question, restate the question, and then he would answer the question. We see that in Romans 6, verse 1. Should we continue on in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. That's the question that he was getting. because He's preaching grace and people were like, what does that mean? Does that mean we just can sin, do whatever we want? No, certainly not. (laughs) How shall we who are dead to sin continue any longer in it? That's what he says. So this is another instance in Romans chapter 9. He says a question and then he responds to the question. So in Malachi it says, God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. And so in Romans chapter 9, it says this. If God, this is the question that he restates. If God hated Esau, does that mean that God is unjust? This is what he restates. Because I'm sure that raises questions. That raises a question with me. Well, does God hates people? He hates certain people? Does he hate me? How do I know if he loves me or hates me? In fact, Paul takes it even farther. In Romans 9, he suggests this. He said, God hated Esau in the womb. He hated Esau in the womb, and he loved Jacob in the womb. So now that goes beyond, like, this had nothing to do with what he did. This is, like, something different. So so he says the question. He says, if God hated Esau, does that mean that God is unjust? Here's his answer. And I pulled it out. I pulled a bunch of different translations. Certainly not. Not at all. Another translation. Here's another translation. By no means... Of course not, may it never be, far from it. And all those, all those translations have exclamation point. Certainly not, may it never be. No, God is not unjust. So did God literally hate Esau? No, that would make God unjust, that he hated him, especially before he was even born. He hated what Esau represented. Esau represents the law trying to relate to God through works of the flesh. Think about this. Isaac asked Esau, go out, hunt some game for me to eat. And he asked him to go out and do something before he would bless him. And we see Esau even brought, he went out, he caught the game. He brought it back. He cooked it himself. And and then he goes to present it. So we asked Isaac. Or I'm sorry, he asked Esau to go out and hunt some game for him to eat before he would bless him. So in order to get the blessing, he had to work for it. But the blessing doesn't come through works of the flesh. Jacob doesn't even cook the meal for Isaac. His mom does. He doesn't even cook the meal, and he shows up with no work, no effort on his own, and he receives the blessing. You see how this is a picture of the first represents works of the flesh, law. The second represents grace. Even his brother's like, you stole that. It's like grace is so good, it's like we sold it. It's like we didn't have to work for it. It was just We just have to receive it. In Romans 9, in the Passion Translation, and, and there's a few other translations that say this. Some translations say, uh, when Paul's restating what was said in Malachi, he says, uh, some translations say, Jacob, I've hated Esau. Uh, Or no, Jacob I love, Esau I've I've, uh, hated. But the way Paul says it in the Passion Translation and in other translations, it says it like this. Jacob I have chosen, but Esau I have rejected. So God rejected the law as a way of us relating to him and receiving his blessing. And he chose Christ for us to relate to him through him and receive the blessing through him. Amen? Amen. Okay, so let's go back. That's just some setting us up for what I want to talk about in Ruth and the story of Ruth. So go back to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz says this You have a closer relative than me, but if he can't redeem you, then I will. So Boaz goes out and he meets the man who is the closer relative to Naomi, uh, to, to Naomi and Ruth, and has the first right of redemption. And Boaz meets this man, and he gives him the opportunity to redeem Ruth and to take her as his wife. And this is, I'm going to read Ruth 4, 6. This is the man's response. Listen carefully to this response. So this is a man who has the first right of redemption for Ruth. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself. Otherwise, I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption since I cannot redeem it. Interesting words. He didn't say, I don't want to. He didn't say, I, I could, but I'm just not going to. He says, I can't. I can't redeem her. Remember, the first is a picture of the law. The law could never redeem us. And Jesus says, since the law couldn't redeem you, I will. This is what Boaz said to her. He comes, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled it. Why? Because we couldn't. We, we were hopeless to ever be able to fulfill the law and to relate to God through law. And God never wanted us to relate to him out of rules and regulations. He wanted us to relate to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He wanted us to relate to him in a relationship, not out of duty and obligation. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He redeemed us. I want to give you one more because this is just so good. Another picture of law and grace. The first representing law and the second representing grace. Ruth's first husband's name was Malon. This name to this day. If you look up this name Malin in a baby dictionary, this is what it means. Sickness. Don't name your kids Malin. It means sickness. So her first husband, first representing law. His name means sickness. Her second husband is Boaz. His name means strength comes from within. Are you filling in the blanks? The law actually came, the Bible says, to, that sin would increase. Not decrease. The Bible says the law came so that sin would increase. What the law did is it exposed mankind's sickness. It exposed that we are incapable of measuring up to God's holy standard without a savior. It showed us our need for a savior. It exposed our sickness. Boaz means strength. Our strength comes from within. Now we're not looking to the outside of what we've done to be justified. We're looking to the strength of within within Jesus Christ to be justified. You You can't make this stuff up. The first represents law. The second represents grace. So I want to encourage you to go back and read the book of Ruth. And as you read it, um, keep this in mind. This really makes the book of Ruth come alive when you keep these symbols in mind. Naomi represents Israel. Ruth represents the Gentile bride and Boaz represents Jesus. I was thinking about putting this up on the screens but I didn't but so here's some some symbols that stand out when you when you have those symbols in mind. So Ruth does not replace Naomi. So the gentile bride is what Ruth is. She does not replace Israel. Ruth, she learns of Boaz's ways From Naomi. So the Gentile bride. Learns of Jesus's ways. From Israel. How many know that that's like. The the old covenant. This And like their story. The story of the Israelites. The story of the Hebrews. This is how we know who Jesus is. This is the story that we read. And they've actually shown us. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. So Naomi. Ruth, the Gentile bride, learns of Boaz's ways, Jesus' ways, from Naomi, Israel. But listen to this. Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. So Israel meets Jesus through the Gentile bride. There's a scripture in the New Testament. It says that the Gentiles are to provoke the Israelites to jealousy because of the relationship that we have with God. Now listen to this. It gets even better. (laughs) No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, she had to come to him. So Boaz is Jesus. Ruth is the bride. We're the bride. No matter how much love he showed, Boaz showed Ruth. Ruth had to come to him and present herself to him. This is a picture of the bride coming to Christ, laying at his feet, saying, marry me, Jesus. (laughs) So good. That's what happens when we receive Jesus. And this and this, I love this. It's Boaz, not Ruth, who confronts the near kinsman. Remember the first kinsman, he represents the law. So it's Jesus, not the bride, who confronts the law, fulfills the law on our behalf. Actually, in that day, She was actually supposed to go to the first Redeemer first. She was actually not supposed to go to Boaz. She was supposed to go to the first guy, and he took care of that for her. He says, Let me do this. I'm going to go to him, and if he won't redeem you, I will. Oh, Jesus. See, I have a few more notes. Just trying to figure out what's for today. How many know what the word righteousness means? Somebody say it. Righteousness. What does that word mean? Somebody said it, I think. Right standing with God. Right standing with God. There's only one way to be in right standing with God. It has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with receiving Jesus. Because what he did on the cross puts you in right standing with God. It says it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you struggle with grace, if you struggle with, you know, even this message today, if you're like, I'm not sure, grill this one into your heart. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ... He became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. One way to become righteous, one way to be in right standing with God, and that's through the son. This is what God planned from the beginning of time. He said Jesus Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. From the beginning of time, he planned that we would be redeemed Through his son, Jesus Christ. And that we would receive righteousness through Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says our righteousness, we don't rely on ourselves. Our righteousness is filthy rags. That's why we don't rely on our righteousness. We know that's filthy rags. We rely on Christ's righteousness. And we actually receive his righteousness so that we're white as snow. Amen. God doesn't want us to go through life wondering if we've done enough to become righteous. God wants you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We're counting on it. We're depending on his righteousness. If I'm depending on my righteousness, I'm on shaky ground for my whole life. When I depend on his righteousness, I can boldly approach the throne of grace. Guilt, shame, and condemnation are terrible motivators. They are not good motivators. If you're motivated by those things, you'll do just enough to avoid punishment. I, I really do feel a heart for people who are uh, under this. Like when you hear people like kind of preaching the law, I actually, my first reaction now is compassion because I'm like, oh, they're under that. They, they don't know if they're going to make it. They're like just trying to work hard enough to, to get in. So, but guilt, shame, and condemnation are, are terrible motivators and if, if that's our motivation, we do just enough. Like, hey, what do I have to do? Like, how much church do I need to attend to? How much the Bible, you know, how often do I have to pray? Like, I want to make sure I'm just going to get in. It's like we don't understand who God is as this loving father. But when we receive his love and the love comes, then we're like, oh, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. Here's my life. I was watching uh, a... <laughs> This just came to mind. We were watching uh, The Chosen last night. We're behind. We're only like on episode five or something. And I I love how they depict uh, Peter. He's like, you know, uh, Andrew comes and he's like, I found the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And he's so excited. And Peter's like, he just is unbelieving. He's like, yeah, the Messiah is not going to pay the bills. I got to go do some, I got to go do some fishing. And then Jesus shows up and, uh, you know, there's the miracle with the fish. And Peter's just still just like, who is this guy? And he's like, okay, fine. We'll cast the net to the other side. And then (laughs) the fish miracle happens. And you see Peter just fall on his feet before Jesus. And he's like, Jesus, I'm I'm a wicked man. Depart from me. And Jesus says, get up, Peter. And he meets him right there. So the response that we have to Jesus' love that's what actually motivates us and drives us is to be respond out of that love and to become the bride the bride is not supposed to be motivated by guilt and shame the father wants the bride to know she's loved love is the greatest motivator it's the greatest motivator I was thinking of that song. You remember that song? Went, I would walk 500 miles. I would walk 500 more. Remember that? <laughs> He's not walking out of guilt. He's walking out of love. He's like, I would walk 500 miles. I'll walk 500 more to be with you. This is a picture of like love. We're not walking out of shame. We don't, we're not, it's not the walk of shame. It's not the walk of guilt. It's the walk of love. Amen. Okay, I'll end with this. It's so important that we, that we get grace and this becomes just so solidified in our heart because we're going to leak what's inside of us. The Bible says it like this. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, what's in your heart is going to come out. Sometimes it comes out of the mouth. Sometimes it's just oozing off of you, good and bad. So I want to tell you just a quick story. I believe I'm standing here today, and I believe I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for uh, my grandma, my dad's mom. And I'm I'm trying not to get choked up on this. Okay. Jesus, help me. Okay. I knew two things about grandma. She loved Jesus, and she loved me unconditionally. And I was, I was kind of a troubled kid. My parents divorced when I was six, and we were, I, I went to 12 different schools in my youth. which was just shipped all over the place. And I was kind of a troubled young man, and a lot of people looked at me as the bad kid, except grandma. <laughs> Not grandma. In grandma's eyes, I could do no wrong. Grandma was always the one defending me, just loving on me unconditionally. And it made a huge impact on my life. Made a huge impact on my life. And it's, I believe it's the reason I'm here today. Is I got to experience unconditional love, grace. Love that I didn't deserve. Love that I didn't earn. Unconditional love. This is so important to get this message deep in your heart for you, number one, so that this, the matter is settled. The matter is settled. I'm not relying on what I've done to get into heaven. I'm not relying on what I've done to maintain my salvation. And here's here's the deeper level, <clears throat> excuse me, the deeper level. I'm not relying on what I've done to experience God's favor. We can we, that can be the next level of like, well, yeah, I'm going to heaven by grace, but I have to be good enough to earn favor. No, you're already favored because you're a son. You're already favored because you're a daughter. I'm not relying on what I've done. We need this message so solidified in our heart because it's going to leak out of us. And we're going we're to testify of it, whether we know it or not. If, we, if guilt, shame, and condemnation is our motivation, we're, that's going to come out of us. And people around us are going to feel that. Like if we're raising kids, they're going to feel that. to be like, well, we got to work hard to do enough for God. If grace is solidified in your heart, they're going to feel that. They're going to feel that unconditional grace thing. I believe it's the reason I'm here today. Go ahead and stand to your feet.